0: Hey guys, Joe Miles here with Osseo Gear. This is the Mission Whitetail podcast. We're going to be doing a deep dive into what it truly takes to kill these mature bucks. We're going to step outside the box and look at the why for gear, tactics, training, and more importantly, the mindset from over 35 years of chasing these magnificent animals all over North America. Thank you for following along and welcome to Mission Whitetail. All right, guys, we are back. Mission Whitetail. We've got Andy May on again for uh his second time. So Andy, thank you so much for coming back. Uh we we got super involved uh last time talking about gear and and anytime all of us start talking about gear, it can get long winded. So so appreciate you coming back for a second time.
1: Yeah, man. My pleasure. I love I love talking about gear. I mean, I geek out about it quite a bit. I know you guys do too. So it's it's fun to to nerd out about it a little bit yeah it's good
0: stuff you know i when i we were we just did the harrisburg show for nine days up in in pennsylvania and, and man it went forever and uh one morning i went and did a podcast with uh, the exodus boys you know a bunch of good fellas and
1: mm-hmm.
0: we, we really had a good one and and you know we brought up kind of the 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 whitetail process or the bow hunting process and you said something that has always resonated with me last time we talked and, and something that came back up in that podcast. And, and when, when you, you, you take the professional mindset, you know, the mindset of a professional athlete, we always bring up Tom Brady. Um, I, I just thought that was really interesting is when, when you, when you talk to a lot of successful, you know, do it yourself, bow hunters, it it seems like there's a, a common theme. Um, you know, not, not, not all guys. I can call a handful of guys right now that shoot their bow twice a year you know, and they they kill big deer. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but when you really start diving in more and more, it it seems like the more majority of guys that are super successful do approach it with a professional mindset. And I, I know that's something you do. And that's something, you know, we talked about the other day is kind of that Tom Brady mindset where it's, Everything, every decision you make is this going to better me as a whitetail bowhunter, and and that's a that's a pretty neat thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, you know, I I hear some people say you know you shouldn't constantly be tinkering with your stuff, and I I can agree to that to a point, but um, this time of year, especially like right after the season, you know, it's still real cold out. Maybe um, postseason scouting time isn't really uh, quite there yet. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting there now, but, um, for me, it's the perfect time to tinker. It's, it's the perfect time to, you know, if I get a new bow, set that up, um, or just my existing bow, kind of going through things, seeing what I like, seeing what I didn't like, um, things that I can improve on. Cause I, I do feel like you can make these little small incremental improvements over a lot of areas and they might be negligible, you know, if you just consider one at a time, but if you, if you kind of have that mindset to just keep making these little minor improvements across the whole board, I think that makes a difference, you there know? You and know. for me, for me personally, um, you know, if I, if I go in, I like going into the season being extremely confident in my, in my setup, I'm shooting good. It's performing good. It's forgiving. And, you know, if there's, if there's a way that I can, you know, test something out against something new in the off season. And it gives me a little bit better performance, a little bit better broadhead flight, a little tighter grouping whatever it is. Um, that's what I like to do. It gives me an outlet this time of year too, you know, hunting season's over. It's like, I want to still be hunting and I can't. So the only thing my mind can tell me to do is like, how can I improve besides scouting? The obvious is, is tinkering with that gear a little bit. And, uh, I'll do that for a few months, and then, and then once I settle in on something, then I just, I just go with it, and then I, I make sure I have, uh, you know, several months shooting the same setup just so I can get confident and familiar with it.
0: Yep. but no, that's good stuff, and that you know that kind of takes us right back to where we kind of left off last time. I think I've got my notes here. We we kind of finished up on strings and maybe sights, um, but but going back, let's go back to the string because you know we 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 want to get pretty deep on this. Um, and, and so hit on e- each component peep site. Is is there a particular peep site you like or, or you have found to be better over time?
1: Yeah. So I use two different peeps. I got a couple different bows set up. Um, I really like, um, it's called, uh, the total peep. Not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, but it's one of those larger peeps. It's kind of more uh, shaped like a like a cylinder. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of a cone going in and then a cone going out. So it get, the, the concept of it is if you do get a little bit of peep rotation, it's not supposed to impact your left and right because of the, the shape of the, uh, the inside of the peep. Um, I really like it. It's kind of got it like a matte type finish. So there's no gloss. You don't get a lot, you don't get like, um, glare if there's the sun's really bright. So I really like that one, especially for western hunting things that are a little more open. Um, a lot of times when you're hunting elk, mule deer, antelope, um, most of your shots aren't like really low light. Um, you know, most a lot of times it's it's bright daylight, or uh, you know, you're stalking in on a, a bedded a bedded mule deer or something in the daylight, or you know, in the afternoon you still got plenty of sunlight. So I think that one really shines. I feel a little more accurate with that one, um, but on my whitetail setup, I actually use. Um, I think it's called the. Uh, oh, the Radical Peep, um, and it's one of the lightest ones on the market. Can't remember if it's made of carbon, um, but I measured, uh, weighed several of them. It's one of the one of the lighter ones on the market, maybe the lightest. And I really like it. It's simple. It's just a standard looking peep, um, but that one um, because of the shape, it lets a little more light in um so for whitetail I like that one a little better because that total peep you know those last few minutes of of shooting light where we often get the crack at that big mature buck that one seems a little more dim than this than this uh radical peep so I keep that one in my whitetail rig although I interchange both bows constantly so it doesn't really matter but um those are the two I use. I use a three inch size and that seems to marry up really well with the site housing that I like about, I use that, uh, inch and five eighths, roughly, um, site housing, uh, HHA, black gold, whatever it is. I, I like to, I like that size site housing and that three sixteenths inch peep marries up perfectly well with it. It forms that perfect eclipse. So, um, that's what I use. I've used it for a few years now, and I, I'm really happy with it.
0: I, we, we run the Radicals, and you've got that one on your on one of your bows, just kind of the tube. Yeah, it's the Hamski Raptor Peep. Have you ever messed with
2: that one,
1: Yep, Andy? yep. The, to, the Total Peep um, is very similar. I've actually used the Hamski Raptor Peep. Um, I actually like the, the Total Peep a little better.
2: I've never um, heard of that. I might have to try that one out.
1: Yeah, yeah, check it out. It's it's cool. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's light. It looks kind of big and bulky. It's one of those, but for how big and bulky it is, it's it's pretty light. But those those radical peeps, I've I've been pretty happy with those. That's too. what I
0: that's what I run the, the, yep. in the three ths and yeah, because I'm mostly in the whitetail woods, so <laughs> that yep. makes good yep. sense. Yeah. So speaking of hamsky um, rest, are you are you running hamsky rest or or what do you
1: Yep. Now I have hamski on all my bows. Um, I just got my new phase four and I got that all set up the other day and uh, I got that hamski Epsilon. Um, I ran that all last year. I like it. I like it a lot. It's uh, They kind of took a lot of the bulk out of um, the previous hamskis and the Matthews model. It kind of it, It's not fully integrated in with the riser, but they got it really sandwiched in um, in line with the riser. So you're not getting a lot of weight out to the right hand side of the bow which I like. You know, I got that bulk down, got that weight down a little bit. But I don't know, man. I shoot them good. They're quiet. Never had an issue with them. Um, I also like the the Matthews Integrate uh, QAD. I used that in the past, but I ended up just getting rid of it and just going all ham skis. There's one time, um, you know, and I, I hate to, I hate to you know, I'm not bad mouthing any company or anything, but there was there was one time when that that QAD let me down, and it, it was um freezing rain, uh, sub zero uh, weather, and uh it got frozen in the upright position, and and I didn't. Luckily, I didn't shoot at an animal, but um at the end of the night when I was getting down, I went to go flip the rest down, and it wouldn't it wouldn't go down. I mean, mm. it was frozen solid there. So that was enough to kind of scare me away um it's not like i do a, a, a ton of like sub-zero you know bow hunting and, and freezing rain but um other than that one moment i really really like that rest i like how it holds the arrow up and it's like full containment there's no possibility of it rattling around i really do like that you got to be a little more careful with that ham ski um but yeah yeah,
0: we we um s- same thing Qad Kansas it was negative nine for like five or you know negative temperatures for five days in a row and Kevin and I were actually hunting together and that's actually when I introduced Kevin to coffee back when yeah. you were about 20. <laughs> it was I would take bud. a thermos of coffee in the morning I, I think you were to drink hot motor oil oh, yeah it, it was so cold <laughs> and and we had the same thing it it, it you know our uh, the Qad I had froze um one morning and that was kind of you know, and I I refer to the hamsky you know r- related over to the rifle side of things. I don't know if you're familiar with night force scopes, but mm-hmm. night force scopes kind of a military grade scope that is just absolutely bulletproof as far as holding it zero and, and, and all the components being tough, tough. And and that's kind of what I relate the the Hampski rest to. Um, they they just you know you can bang them around. You know, it seems mm-hmm. like they're always in in real good shape and we it was a little bit of a learning curve Ke- Kevin you know he he tinkers more than i do and and is actually a bow mechanic so he he messes with them more than i do and it seems like the epsilon we there was a bit of a learning curve there maybe the first one we had I had some tracking issues or a bearing was out or something but
2: yeah we got one of the very first ones and like the internals on the the clicker was kind of getting jammed up but we we ended up just taking it apart and it it just had like a little shaving or something from a screw kind of lodged in there but um other than that i mean i i like them a lot i like how you can tune how they their speed for when they drop away like you Mm -hmm. can have it hold it longer or you can have it hold it less and drop away i've i've uh Tinkered with that a good bit to see if it really made any kind of difference. Um yeah, I, I like that having that ability to do all that stuff. I
0: like how you said we took it apart. Like I, I was in on that. Yeah, Kevin <laughs> took it apart. <laughs> Joe is there. Yeah, I, I was holding the flashlight. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Not in the wrong spot. I no, no, know. I was I was I learned that at a very young age to hold it right on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, good stuff! All right, um, couple more for you on on equipment, Andy. Uh, Quiver, anything special there?
1: Yeah, so I run a, a couple different quivers. Um, I have that Matthews one piece. Um, that that new one that holds it really close to the riser. Uh, that thing's I really like that. I just like how what Matthews is doing and, and kind of getting everything in line really helps with balance. Really helps like it doesn't feel like you're carrying this big, awkward thing that's got accessories hanging out every which way. Um, With that said, I don't shoot with my quiver on, so um, when I get in the tree, it comes right off. So there i – I'm going to forget the name of this quiver. Um, There's another quiver. um, Can I go grab it real quick? Yeah, man. Have at Uh, it. All right, here it is. I would never want to remember the name, um, but I really like this quiver. It's called the Conquest. Okay. okay. And what, what's uh, what's kind of cool about this one is it just has these little grippers here, and you just squeeze them, and it comes right off. So it's really, like, really easy, super quiet, one-hand operation. I use this one out west when I'm hunting uh, mule deer or antelope. And I have the, I think it's, uh, um, oh, photo Peep also makes this little attachment that goes around uh, hooks to your belt. And what it is, it's basically a little plastic piece that your belt can go through. And then you can get an extra, the, the piece of the quiver that goes on your bow where, where this would attach to, you can get an extra one of those and attach it to that plastic piece. So when I'm going in for a stalk, you know, I might have my bow on my quiver. And then when I'm getting in like in the red zone and I want this off, instead of setting it on the ground, I take it off quietly and I hook it right on my belt. So it, I, can, I can put it right there and then I have it right there on my belt. Um, you can actually rotate it. So if you're stalking on all fours and your fletchings are straight up in the air, you can rotate it back so your fletchings are pointing back so there isn't something above you. I mean, I I love that, and I I'm a big ground hunter, and big spot and stalk guy, and this is my choice for that. And I, the fact that you can take it off, there's no snapping or anything. It just it just literally just grips it. You can take it off. It's it's 100% silent,
0: and it has so, two points two points of contact for the arrows too, right?
1: It does. Meaning yep. it's
0: got two, two. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that one on the bottom.
1: Yep. Yep. Got it. it does. Yep. Yeah, which is super important, you know, and. Keeping your arrows in the quiver, especially when you're crawling around the, in the bush or whatever. But that that total peep uh, attachment that goes on your belt, if you're a spot and stalk guy and you like shooting without your quiver, I mean, that thing is just, it's just awesome. You know, and then you don't have to like, you're moving your bow, you know, you're crawling, you're moving your bow and then you're moving your quiver or maybe you set the quiver down and you have to adjust and then your quiver's over there. It's, it's always right there on your hip. So it's, it's a it's a big deal, man. And it gives you a quick follow-up arrow.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, but right I in. tune
1: my bow. I tune my bow and I practice with the quiver off. So when I put the quiver on, it, it changes the tune of my bow. It actually adds quite a bit of weight. So I don't mind taking a shot with the quiver on if something happens quick. Um in fact when I go elk hunting, um, a lot of times I'll tune that bow to shoot with the quiver on because you know how it is, you can be calling up, they could be <laughs> They could be on you really fast. So, the, um, if I'm planning a hunt like that where it's likely I'm going to need the quiver on, I'll tune the bow with the quiver on. Yep, yeah, that's a good idea.
0: What about stabilizers, back bars, and your grip? Do you do anything funky with your grip, or just shoot with the regular regular factory grip?
1: Well, it's funny you say that because um, I I I actually uh, don't mind the engage grip. Um, too much on the Matthews. It's comfortable for me. Um, I think sometimes I've noticed that I'll grip it and my hand will be, you know, in an ideal spot. And then maybe a few shots later, I'll grip it and it might slide up a little, or it might be just a little off. And I like a grip that just when you go to grab it, your hand just goes to the right spot every time. And I think I think because that engage grip is a little narrow at the top, like I can actually slide my hand up and get my finger like above the shelf. So I just, I just have to be more cognizant of making sure my grip is exactly where I want it on that, um, on that engage grip. So I, um, I've messed around with the ultra view grip um, and that's a pretty good one. And then I just recently got um, total peep again, <laughs> total peep makes a, a Matthews, Um, grip. And I've been shooting that one today, the last few days. And it creates like a a shelf that kind of goes over your index finger. So you, you bring your wrist up and it hits that, it hits like a a top, you know, so you can't really reach your finger around up to the arrow shelf, which with that engage grip, you know, you can, you can slide up and get that index finger right up there. So I don't know, I'm still messing with it. Um, I want to see if I shoot well with it, if it's, if it's forgiving, it's a little bit higher wrist. So, you know, the, you know, the engage grip is a little bit lower wrist. And this, this, this new one is, uh, the angle is a little, a little bit higher. So it does feel a little different right off the bat. So I'm going to need some time with it, but I'm going to test it. You know, I'm going to shoot it for several weeks, get used to it. And then I'm going to, you know, I'll fire 50 arrows downrange at 80, um, and measure my groups. And, um, then I'll throw the, the engage on there and do the same thing and see if there's a noticeable difference, you know, and that's, and and I'll just go with the one that I I feel more comfortable with.
0: And and that, you know, with that shelf, like you're talking about, it gives you a touch point, a consistent touch Mm -hmm. point. And that, you know, just like when you, you know, you've got your nose on the string or a kisser button or whatever, another touch point, and and that's got to help to repeat the process.
1: Yeah. And that's what it feels see. Like. yeah, that's what it feels like right now. It feels like it's a pretty repeatable grip. Like I can't get any higher than a certain point. So I just kind of, I grab it and bring my hand up and it's, it's kind of locked in there. So we'll see.
2: I catch myself getting high on the grip too. And then the, the fletchings will remind me I'm too high every now and again. And they'll, they'll give me a little love tap on yep. my, uh, trigger finger on the left side. Yeah. Speaking of, well, that's- speaking of grip, Andy, do you, when you're gripping the bow and you're at full draw, do you have like even pressure down the center of your hand? Do you put more pressure up top or toward the bottom? Um, where do you like, where do you like the pressure at?
1: I try to keep it even. Um, just kind of like the natural pressure of the bow kind of coming into my hand. Um, you know, just to the side of that lifeline right here, right here in that muscle there is where my bow sits. Right. And, um, I don't try to alter, give it a little more heel or a little more high risk. I just kind of let it come in there naturally. And it seems to be evenly spread out. I don't, I don't try to like change anything because I feel like I, I wouldn't be real consistent and be able to do that, you know, each and every time. But I had the same thing happen to me. Like, you know, I'll shoot with that engage grip and everything's fine. And then every once in a while I shoot one and it, it, you know, I get a fletching that hits my finger. I'm like, well, I'm obviously not doing the same thing every time. (laughs) You know, so that's not good. So that's what's prompting me to prompting me to check out some other other grips. See if there's something out there I can. Uh, but the Ultra View is a good one. Um, it's got kind of more of a flat back, more of a blocky, and it's it's very smooth. And then this uh, this new Total People one is uh, it's got a little more gritty type texture. But those are, are you know two worth looking at.
2: Yeah, I'm probably, I'll probably be ordering one. I already put Total Peep in my phone, in my browser, so I don't forget. <laughs> That's what I was doing. You got some good stuff, man,
1: yeah. Yeah,
2: I catch myself every now and then doing like a, a high, you know, putting my wrist into it, like a high wrist grip, and then I'm like, well, mm-hmm. now you're using more muscles than you need to instead of being relaxed and just having that pressure you know, throughout Mm -hmm. your whole palm, and then it's kind of making all your bones in line with the bow. Um, so maybe the grip will help me, but I, I have the same problem. i get, I'm obviously moving something throughout the practice. And that's something I don't think of when I'm about to draw back on a deer and shoot them. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. It'd be interesting to, that's one thing when I was shooting uh, with Levi at that Spartan Forge get together, I should have asked him because, uh, he takes that engaged grip right off. He shoots off the riser, um, you know, just with side plates, or at least he was then. And um, it would be cool to to talk to a professional about why why they do that or how they know when it's time to, to change a grip or take a grip off and shoot off the riser. But it, it seems like most of those guys want their hand, like, right on the riser and and, and don't want, you know, these, these grips, these stock grips. So that should tell you something, I guess.
2: Yeah, I know. I know On my, um, my Hoyt Venom, I took the, the rubber grip off. It just kind of, it's just like the Matthews grip. You just kind of peel it off mm. and that's got a thin riser under that. And I just wrapped it in some hockey tape and it feels really
0: good. Yeah. Anyway,
2: what, what else? All we right. Got? We
0: got a uh, last thing on, on equipment, I guess. Stabilizers back bar.
1: Yep. So, um, I think for me personally, the Matthews uh, system shoots better. It shoots better for me if I have some side stabilization on it. Um, it, it, The grip runs a little low um, in the riser. It's like below center. So that means there's more mass weight above. It means they're just a little top heavy, you know, and you put your sight on the side um, or your, your rest attaches to, you know, the side and it just creates that little bit of weight and it wants to fall. So, I don't like fighting my bow. I like my bow to just naturally come to level. So I run um, either a 10 or a 12, most, most of the time a 10 out front with anywhere from like two to three ounces. I don't add a bunch of weight. And then my sidebar um, almost always is five or six ounces. And that seems to, for me at full draw, it seems to balance my bow perfectly left to right. So I can draw back with my eyes closed and I can open and my ball will will be perfectly level. Yep. And, um, that's, that's what I like. I know a lot of guys, um, uh, professional archery shooters, they actually like to put a little, um, little more weight off to the side. So they actually have to input, put a little input into the bow to get it to level. That's more consistent for them, but I just don't want to think about my bubble. I just want it to be, I want it to be level and, uh, and not have to worry about that. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll always kind of, I'll analyze my pin float. So like I'll, you know, I'll draw back and I'll hold like on a 3d target or on a circle or whatever. And I'm just kind of looking at what my pin's doing, you know? And if it's, if it's real jittery, if it's moving around real quick, you know, I might add an ounce or two in the front and that usually calms that down. If I, have a, if I have a pin that's constantly wanting to like drop drop out the bottom, it like floats here, floats here, and it drops. That, that seems to be an issue for me. You know, I'll, it'll be floating, floating, and then it just kind of drops out the bottom. So in, if that's the case, I'll add a few weights on the back bar to kind of help hold that pin up. So depending on what my pin's doing, I'll add or take away from the front or to the back, to kind of try to get that pin float to be consistent. I don't mind if it moves, it's going to move. Like I can't hold it perfectly still, but I want it to be floating around the middle. I don't want it to be here and then boom here. And then boom, you know, I don't want it to do that. And I also, I personally don't love a, a real jittery pin. You know, if I take all my stabilization off and just go like bare bow, I'm, I can still shoot okay. But my pin is like moving around a lot more. So by adding that mass weight, it kind of slows it down. It gives me a little more calmer sight picture. Personally, I like that more slow kind of moving pin, but I don't want it like moving way out like this. So I use those those bars and add those ounces either in the front or in the back to just kind of get that pin where I want it. And then it just kind of hovers there. Then I could, we, just, then I could just focus on my shot execution.
0: And we, we talk about that a good bit about having a little heavier bow. Um, because you you look at what we'll, we'll I keep going back to rifles, but you know you look at guys that are bench shooters and stuff. They're rifles, you know, those bull barrels and all that. That that's a heavy rifle, and you know you don't need a twenty pound bow by any stretch. But wouldn't you agree, Kev? I mean, most of our bows are are fairly on the heavy side.
2: Yeah, by the time we put our sights and and <laughs> our sidebars on them, they're they're on the heavier side. You wouldn't you wouldn't pick them up and be like, wow, this is Super light. light. They're yeah. not super. We don't load them up with a ton of weight. I think what what do we got? Like probably six ounces on the bars all together, at the most. But I, I don't think um, we don't shoot a super light bow either. Is that something that you do as like a drill, Andy, during the off season? Is try to shoot without um stabilizers on, or shoot with one you know one footed, anything like that to give you more pin movement.
1: Um. I will. I will. uh, I don't really take my uh, stabilizers off because I kind of want to just practice with the way I'm going to hunt it. But I do often um, put myself in like challenging positions to shoot because that's that's kind of what I always find myself in some sort of challenging position or some sort of awkward position when I'm hunting. You know, sometimes, yeah, you're sitting in, you're in the whitetail woods, you're in a hang on tree stand, the deer comes in right to your left side and it's, you know, ideally just a sit down shot and, and that's fine. But, you know, when you're hunting from the saddle, sometimes you gotta move a little more. Sometimes you're using a little more core stability. If you're on the ground, you know, you might be, I've, I've had to um, be at full draw and then and then squat down a little bit to make the shot under, you know, under some cover. When you're out west in the mountains, you got kind of uneven footing. And when I think about a lot of my shot opportunities, they're they're never ever just flat foot perfectly, you know, like you do in the backyard. They're always some sort of contortion or twist or something. So I'll do my tinkering and my testing on flat ground in the backyard, you know, in my flip flops or whatever. But then once I figure out what is is shooting the most forgiving and what I have the most confidence in, then I go to more like real life training mode, you know, shooting from the roof, shooting from tree stands, shooting from a saddle, getting on a side hill, putting my one leg up on a rock or a stump and, and really challenging that. That's a great drill. The, The one legged drill, standing on one foot is a great drill to see if you're really focused on the right thing for a good shot execution, because that will rapidly move your pin. And, if you do that and your pins all over the place and you're like, you know, stopping and going, stopping and going and trying to time it, well, it tells you right there that you're, you know, you're slapping the trigger and trying to time the release. But if you can just accept that movement and run a good shot execution, then, you know, that's, then you're focusing on the right thing. You're focused on, on actually executing a good shot and not worrying about what your pin's doing.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's my problem. A lot of times I'll, I can't keep the release moving. Once I get on target, I'll get going, get going. I'm like, okay. And then I lock up and then it's like, okay, keep going. And then I lock up and then finally, boom. And you're like, all right, I don't know if I can do that again. And then sometimes it's on the money and other times, yeah. I really got to talk myself through it. Um, and maybe we should talk about that. since Yeah. We- yeah. Let's, let's go. Let's yeah. yeah so, absolutely. Andy say, so, so when you're about to, you know, you're at the moment of truth and you're about to take a shot on a on a mature buck or whatever. What tell us step by step what you're saying in your head or what you practice in the backyard actually saying out loud. Um mm-hmm. like I because I know you have a process. I heard you talk about it on the the um Spartan Forge get together. I want I wanna to touch on that again because that's what I'm really into is getting over yeah. that hump.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I was in the same spot as you, you know, back in like 2010, 2011, I was really struggling with, you know, locking below the target and slapping the trigger. And and I was dealing with target panic big time. Um, Then I kind of identified what I was doing and, and, and worked through it, got the help I needed and completely, completely redesigned the way I shoot. And it's just been, I mean, now, like I was really struggling back then to even enjoy archery because I was just screwing up so bad. You know, my target panic got so bad and then it made me fall in love with archery again once I was able to get through that and uh, develop a good shot execution process. But to answer your question, um, when I actually come to full draw, like the deer standing there in the, in the lane, I come to full draw and I'll draw the bow back and then I just kind of naturally come to my anchor, touch my nose with the string and then I... S- what I, the way I describe it is I splash the pin right on the spot. It doesn't matter if I'm shooting at a deer or if I'm shooting at a little circle in the backyard. I splash it on there. And what that means is I immediately put the pin right on the spot. I don't creep up to it. I don't bring it in from the side or down. I splash it on that spot. And then I'll just say, um, settle. And basically what that tells me is just like, just settle, just relax, you know. And then I'll say aim. And then it's basically what I'm telling myself is I'm walking through my, my myself through these steps. So I'll say settle, aim. And then as soon as I make the decision to like aim and I'm ready to execute the shot, then I start saying pull, 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 pull. And basically what I'm doing is I'm telling myself to physically do the movement that I want to achieve, which is pulling through the shot. So I use a handheld, my thumb's on the on the trigger and I'm pulling like this. This is exaggerated, but I'm pull, 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 pull until the shot goes off. So when I'm, when I'm actually shooting at a deer, my thought process is very, very mechanical. It's, it's, I'm thinking of the actual physical things that I want to accomplish during that shot execution. And I'm not, I'm not thinking about like how big the deer is or you know, this, I'm so nervous, or gosh, I hope I make this shot. I actually kind of remove myself from that just for a moment and focus on the mechanics of my shot. And if that, to me, it it kind of um, takes the anxiety away. It takes the anxiety of um, the moment away. It takes the anxiety of like my pin movement Um, the adrenaline and all that. And I'm just focusing on the mechanics of making a good shot, because if I can make a good shot here, like in my person, make a good execution shot, the arrow is going to go where I want it to go. But if I start thinking about the, the weight of this moment, you know, how big this buck is, or man, my friends are going to go crazy or, oh my gosh, I've never seen a buck this big. Now I'm starting to think about the wrong things and my shot execution isn't going to be what I want it to be. So Um, if you're, if you're thinking of it, like you were saying, you get locked up. Does that happen when you, like when your pin kind of drifts off target, off target, you lock up a little bit or do you lock below?
2: So, I'm I used to lock below a long time ago, but now I kind of do what you said. Um, I'll splash it on there. I'll go right, right to where I need to be. And then I start working the release and it's like, just like you said, my pin will be right there on it. And then it dips under, and then I'm got it, and then I'm like, "You son of a gun, get back up there!" And then I'm fighting it. I get it back up there, and I'm start working, it and maybe I'll get it, I'll get it to go then. Um, but yeah, that that's what happens. I'll have it on there, perfect. It'll be going, going, and then drops.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so I guess I gotta, I should try adding a little more weight and doing some tinkering with the with the stabilizers. That sounds like I need to put a little more weight in the
1: back. You might be able to address you know those those bottom drops with some stabilization. But if if your goal is to if your goal is to master the unanticipated release, you need to not worry about what your pin's doing. What you need to do is well, you know, once you decide you could put your pin on that target, on that deer, on his vitals, you stare at your spot and you just let your pin float. It's it's gonna move all over the place, but it's called. Um, you know, our brains will constantly recenter the pin, whatever we're looking at. So, you know, if you're staring at a circle on your block target, your pin's gonna do this, and then it's gonna come back to center, and it's gonna keep coming coming back to center like this, and it's gonna do some sort of figure eight, but it, it's always coming back to center. And as long as you focus on that it's always going to come back. So, if you are starting your release, stopping your release, starting it every time it drifts off the off the circle, that's anticipation. You're you're focusing on the aim and you're not focusing on the shot execution. So, you'd be surprised if you were to like if you were able to measure the amount of time that your pin is in the center, it's probably in the center like 75% of the time. And then when it drifts out, it's coming right back. So there's, there's times where, you know, it might be here and your shot might break when it's here and it'll still hit in the center because it was coming right back. And even if it did break with it, when it's a little off center, I mean, you might be off what an inch or two. So what you need to focus on or what I need to focus on, if I was dealing with your issues, you can, you can, you know, take this if you want. I focus on the execution. So once I say aim, I don't think about aiming anymore. Basically, I'm, that's telling me to look at the spot, and now I'm thinking, pull, 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 pull. It doesn't matter what my pin does. From that point on, I'm just executing. And that creates um, a very low anxiety type of shot execution because you're not worried about what your pin's doing now because you know it's constantly going to come back to center. If, as long as you keep looking at that spot, they call it visual proprioception. It just comes, you hear, hear Joel Turner talk about it. Um, John Dudley's talked about it, but it's the same concept of if you're driving down the road, you know, you're, you know, you're in your truck and you're not thinking, Oh, left, right, left. You're not thinking about that. You're just looking and you instinctively do this. And when you're at full draw and you just look at your spot, you're instinctively bringing that pin right back to center. You're not thinking about, Oh, bring it up. Oh, left. Oh, right. If you're thinking about that, you're thinking about the wrong thing. So, the way i do it is i come to full draw i say settle and that just that just tells me like you know settle my grip settle my shoulders okay aim and then once i say that i'm basically just locking my eyes on the spot i want to hit and then i don't think about it ever again and then i i go right to pull 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 and once i start pulling i don't care what my pin's doing um you know granted you might be in the middle of the pull the deer takes a step and you have to okay stop you know then i started all over settle aim pull 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 since i've been able to do that the target panic is gone there's no anxiety on the shot it's very much focusing on the physical aspects of the shot execution and my shots are are much better on animals my conversion rate is extremely high and uh, i just don't have to deal with target panic anymore
2: yeah, I think I'll, I'll have, I need to be harder on myself with it. I guess I'll, I'll have a handful of shots when I'm practicing where it's perfect un- un- unanticipated, like you said, um, I would break the shot and it'd be like a dang explosion cause you didn't even, didn't even know it was coming. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's left. And I'll look through my binos or whatever. And I'm like, damn, it's right in the center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so but then I'll I'll grab another arrow and I was like, well, that was good and just rip it back and and like I said, grip it and rip it. And then I'm like, Well, all right, that wasn't that good. Get back to it. And it's just it's just a, a mental thing, a big mental thing that and that the way Joel Turner explains it, where um it's kind of like going through different rooms of a house. You go mm-hmm. go through the front door, you hit the aiming room, and then this room and and now it's the, what 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 do you say? The last one was the release room or the shot execution room, something like that. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah. you close the door once you get through those rooms. You go right to it and don't go back in there. And that's that's, right. that's my problem. I got to quit going back in the other rooms.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you get different archery coaches, and you know Joel Turner has a real interesting way to to explain it in his teaching. And then the guy, some of the guys that helped me, like there was a couple of guys from archery talk, a guy down at my, my, uh, local range. And then a lot of John Dudley's early on stuff really helped me get through my target panic. And they all kind of have different words and, you know, explanations of how to get through it. But when you really look at it, they're all telling you the same thing, you know, and it's to, it's to focus on the shot execution and get your mind off the moment, get your mind off how bad your pins moving um, and just focus on the execution. But, you know, we should mention too, like if there's guys out there that are slapping the trigger and they're, you know, they're killing animals and they're not having any issues, don't change, you know, don't, don't do anything different. For me, it was costing me animals and I was missing targets in the backyard because my target panic was getting so bad and I had no idea, you know, it's the way I'd shot my whole life. And I had to, I had to kind of relearn, the, the right way to shoot a bow and the right things to think about and I'm just so glad that I did because it's just so much more enjoyable now and shorter track jobs um you know more animals on the ground higher confidence and uh just enjoying it a lot more
0: you know it's like it's like anything that is is precise like hitting a baseball for example you know you you can get in a slump and, and you know some guys I know we, we had a, a third baseman in, in college that, that could hit the cover off the baseball and I won't mention his name, but mentally he was not the most uh, acute guy. And, and you didn't ever want to talk about slump or mechanics or anything around him because it would ruin him. He would he just knew how to get in the box and hit the baseball. See mm-hmm. it, hit it in the story, and then there were there were other guys that had problems and really had to go through the mental process of hitting a baseball. So so hitting back to your point about guys that do push the trigger or pull the trigger, um, yeah, I mean, don't even think about target panic. The, the worst thing if what you're doing is working, you, you push mute on this segment of the of the <laughs> podcast. Right, stick with yeah. what you're doing, but but if you do get into that. Um, th- then the, the, the beauty of it is there are ways to get out of it, right? It's oh, yeah. it's, it's not the end. Um, yeah. so you, you can get out of it and, and everybody will hit a slump at some point in their archery. I mean, there's there, you know, even the pro shooters, you know, they, they have slumps that they get into and they have to reset and come out of them. So,
1: yeah, you know, it's pretty, pretty surprising. Like, uh, it's surprising how many real good hunters are out there that. You know, are dealing with it, you know, the same thing that that you were dealing with Kevin just locking below the target I mean it's really really common amongst some really phenomenal hunters out there um so yeah the help is out there if you need it there's ways to get past it but yeah don't change what isn't broken that's for sure
2: yeah now it's even just being able to be focused enough to draw back and just like you said splash the pin right where you want it to go and quit wasting all that time I shoot so much better now I started doing that like three or four years ago Mm -hmm. and shoot way better and I'm I'm getting there it's just taking probably longer than it should because I get slack sometimes especially during the season I'm like all right let me let me go shoot a few rounds and I'm shooting shooting good Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna really step it up this soft season
0: what else we got all right uh let's let's completely shift gears from equipment and I, I know we talked a little bit of this off air before we got started about how many times you've gone through your your hunting tactics and how, how you do <laughs> things so let, let's just hit on that briefly Andy if you will you know you, and you know I'll let you you speak but you know you do some ground hunting which is a little bit different some low saddle hunting and for our listeners that, that haven't heard kind of your style just briefly go through that and then maybe we'll get into a couple deer stories and and call it a night how's that sound
1: sure yeah um yeah I do uh, I I hunt a lot of different states I hunt a lot of different areas within my home state um I don't really have um like a specific piece of property that Produces every year. Um, I have to bounce around and sometimes cover several counties to find a single deer that I'm interested in, in pursuing. Um, it, it's just, especially up here in Michigan and some of the parts of northern Ohio where I hunt, the the, the lack of mature deer it just makes it really tough, you know. So I, I do have to spread my net far and wide. So I don't hardly ever anymore like prep a spot or prep a tree or, you know, or get stands hung. I used to do that, um, in my early years. And what I found was I'd prep, you know, 30, 40, 50 stands, and then I wouldn't hunt, but, you know, a couple of them. And then I was bouncing around to different areas where I didn't have a stand. So occasionally, um, you know, there's a good spot in a good area, maybe, maybe a good rut funnel or something that, if it's on a piece of permission ground, I'm, I am might prep that stand or, or trim that tree up and make sure everything's good to go. But 90% of the time I am like on the fly. And, um, essentially what I do is i try to locate a deer, um, at least around home, locate a deer to go after. And, and then I'll, um, depending on where he is and that's where I start to focus my time, but I don't know where that's going to be from year to year. Like, This year, um, I was hunting a county, you know, two counties away from me and didn't even hunt my home county hardly at all, because that's where the, one of the deer, one of the two deer that I saw that were, or found that was mature. That's where, you know, that's where he was. Um, it was on a piece of property that I didn't even hunt at all last year. And probably, you know, in the last 10 years, I, maybe I've hunted it three times, you know, so it's, um. It, it really just depends, but I don't spend a lot of time prepping trees anymore. It's more like, okay, find the deer, and now I'm going in there kind of on the fly, more of a mobile type setup. Um, not always, but that seems like that's what I'm doing more and more these days because I just don't have that that real good spot, you know, that good piece of that good piece of leased ground or a good piece of permission property where it's like, oh yeah, there's there's probably going to be a shooter here every year. They 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 come from vastly different. Spots all the time. Um, you know, rarely do uh, two of my good deer come off the same piece. So I'm just moving around a lot. So that it leads me to um, go with my mobile setup most of the time. And as far as like hunting low, um, a lot of that reason is uh, because I, I do have to get in tight to these deer, especially like when you're talking outside the rut. I try to narrow down where these deer are and I'm often like, you know, going in and kind of still hunting and reading sign on the way in. And then, you know, when I think I'm getting close, like I don't want to make a bunch of racket getting up 25 feet in the tree. You know, I don't really want to create that commotion and get up there where I might have to like move some limbs or, you know, saw some stuff down. So a lot of times I'm trying to be so delicate and quiet in my approach and my setup that I'll hunt, you know, just high enough where I can get in completely silent. Um, and and try to pull it off that way where the ideal thing would be you know to have a stand set up and get up there 25 feet you know out of the field of view but it seems like a lot that I'm hunting you know twelve feet or less sometimes ground level sometimes three feet Um, and I really like the saddle for that uh, because what I can do is if I if I do get into an area and a lot of our deer, probably there too, a lot of our bigger bucks, they tend to hide in areas where they don't have big trees. You know, it's a lot of like eye level cover, kind of gnarly trees that you can't even really get a stand in. Um, but so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll I'll be scouting into those areas and I'll find a spot. And I think this is the kill spot. And I'll get on um, the backside of a tree in my saddle and I'll I'll try to find a big tree that kind of breaks me up you know, my shoulders a little bit, my head, and I'll, I'll set up behind it. It's almost like the tree is the blind, you know? So not like right in the deer's face, but kind of like off to the side where I think he might come through or downwind of a, you know, a good primary scrape or something like that. And I'll get really low and use that tree as a blocker. And sometimes my feet are on the ground or sometimes I'll have the platform really low and then I can just lean out for the shot. You know, I just have to be really attentive because I am low. I'm in that deer's field of view and they're really good at picking out movement. So it's not like I can be like on my phone, you know, and peeking my head out like this every once in a while. I mean, I gotta be, you know, I gotta be really tuned in. So it it leads to um I think by hunting like that, uh it leads to me getting busted a little more, but I'm also getting on more deer like that because I'm always finding that hot sign. Um, I'm constantly, constantly searching for, um, for a buck to go after. And if I, if, if, if I don't have a buck to go after, I'm not really, I'm not really set up hunting, I'm scouting or I'm scouting and kind of sneaking through the woods with my setup, with my bow, with my saddle, kind of more like still hunting and scouting. And then if I get eyes on a deer, great. If I come across hot sign, I might set up or, um, you know, otherwise I'm just, I just keep working through the area and just keep scouting. So until I find what I'm looking for. So my style is more hunt, less scout more. And then, you know, when I find what I'm looking for, that's, that's when I set up, when I feel like I have the confidence to the confidence that I'm going to get an encounter with that deer, like a pretty good chance of having an encounter with that deer, then that's when I'll I'll actually set up. Otherwise, I'm 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 moving around a lot.
0: Yep. What is Andy? What is your mobile setup? What what do you what do you run with?
1: Yeah. So I have several. Um, most of the time, nine times out of ten, I'm going to take my my tethered saddle. I just have the Phantom, and then I have the uh, Predator platform by Tethered. Um, I just like I just like the the light setup. I like how uh, the minimal bulk. You know, I can I can slip through the woods with that on, and it doesn't feel any difference than me just walking through the woods with nothing on. And that's what I really like because a lot of times I am like kind of slipping around, you know, sneaking around and scouting and, and kind of still hunting and then looking for something to set up on. So that's my go-to. But I also have um a light hang-on setup. I have a lone wolf custom gear um with some custom gear uh, sticks. It's awesome. You know what I mean? If I'm, if I'm going with a hang on, I also have the hunting beast, uh, tree stand, um, which is another really light one. That one has a little more room than the other one, but they're both great, man. Both, both companies are awesome. Um, they make great stuff. You can't go wrong with them, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I could take either one. I don't think it would really impact my success too much, but I tend to go with the saddle more because of my like ultra mobile style. Um, but if I'm going to a spot where, you know, I already know where the tree is and it's already trimmed out, I might take the, you know, I might take the, the stand. It just depends on the mood, but a lot of times it might depend on the tree setup too. You know, if it's a, if it's a really bare tree and I can't get up super high, I might feel more comfortable in in a hang on where I can like get sucked myself really close to the tree, you know, and and just kind of be one with the tree or, you know, I've in sometimes, sometimes a big wood setup. Um, like when I hunted down in Maryland, it was like kind of hill country, but it was really wide open hardwoods and I needed to get really high. I thought it was more advantageous to actually use the saddle, get up 30 feet and get on the backside of the tree. So I was out of their field of view, but then I was also using the tree. There was just so many deer so I felt I felt a little more concealed by getting in the back side of the tree and using that tree as cover. And then I could I could move around and make that shot when I needed to. So I picked the the right tool for the job, at least what I think. Um, but most of the time I'm taking the saddle.
0: Yep. Cool. Well <clears throat> we're closing in on an hour again here. And if if you don't mind, we, we love to do this with guys that are that are killers and, and have been in the game a long time. Walk us through a, a deer or two that that you have have played the game with, locked horns with, if you will, and and kind of spent a maybe a year or two going after, and uh, from from start to finish, and and just because I think everybody can learn from those experiences when guys talk about, you know, that it's just so much to learn from a guy that, that's been successful on a, a mature buck and has chased it for for quite a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's two, uh, two that uh, came to mind. They're actually both Ohio bucks, and both both kind of recent. You know, in the last four years or so, um, they two different tactics, and I'll, I'll kind of try to buzz through them a little bit. But the one um, was a big, mature six point. He's one of my one of my favorite deer that I've ever killed. He's super mature. I don't know how old he was, but he was five plus. Um really heavy. He scores 146 as a six point. I don't like to score my deer really that much, but I had to know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That's,
0: That's a, a world name. class six point.
1: Yeah. I world had class. That one. He's super cool. Just real heavy, big beams. Um, but that deer, um, it's interesting because he lived in some really, really open pancake, flat country, and not like Kansas, where there's you know, CRP. I mean, it's flat ag this area is aggressively farmed. I mean, they're taking the beans and the corn out like opening day of both season. I mean, it's, it's like, there's not much there. There's little tiny woodlots, little drainages here and there. Um, but when you, when you zoom out on an aerial, you're like, we're there, there, there's no deer there. Like there can't be right. But there are, there's not a lot of them. Um, the downside is there's not a lot of mature deer because the gun pressure, um, they're, they're very, very effective at, at pushing the deer out of these little pockets and killing them. So it's very rare to get like a, even a three or four year old deer to go after, but this deer somehow made it. Um, I had seen him the year before and I was actually focused on a, um, a different 10 point. I I would have been happy with either one, but there was a 10 point that I had glassed. I ended up shooting him and you know, you only get the one tag in Ohio, but I kind of kept tabs just kind of glassing and driving around when I could um, on this other big six point. And what I noticed is he was very, very nomadic and he liked to, he used um, a lot of like the standing corn or these little ditches for travel. Um, Even on sections where there were no trees, I would often see him like just sneaking along this little ditch. And when I say a ditch, I mean, literally just a little shallow, drainage ditch you know in a field where the runoff goes in and um he would either be down in those or he'd be right along the the edge and he seemed to travel through the landscape using um using the standing corn or those and he really seemed to avoid like the woodlots and you know where all the hunters were so i just i just took note that first year of like how nomadic he was i was seeing him several miles apart um you know Uh, at least a few different times, you know, two, three miles apart. Well, fast forward to the next year. Um, I was really looking for that deer because he was such an impressive animal and started glassing him up. And, um, the same thing, he was doing the same type of behavior, using standing cornfields and these little ditches and stuff. So, I started knocking on a lot of doors, trying to get access to all of these like wide open spots where I was seeing these deer or this deer. I was getting pictures of him on a little piece of public ground. Um, but always at night, always in the middle of the night. And then he left some really big signs, really shredded. He had a, a like a hook coming off of his base, a lot of like knurling around the basis. So his rubs were very, uh, identifiable and this area just doesn't have numerous mature deer. So like I would see these shredded up rubs and I assumed, you know, they're probably his and I was finding them on that piece of public. And then I had permission over here, a mile and a half. And then I was finding sign over there and then I'd see them like in between. And then I had permission on another piece over here and I'd get a picture of them over there. And what I concluded was he was doing like some sort of like three, two and a half to three mile triangle, um, basically in an area that has hardly any trees and all of the spots where I had pictures of them were always in the middle of the night. So the more I thought about this, I was like, I think this deer's living in the wide open, like all day, you know, where nobody is. So I I tried to get permission on some of these pieces that were basically just flat field, you know, flat field with a little ditch running through it or a little hedgerow or, and people were like, looking at me weird when I, <laughs> when I went up and asked, can I deer hunt your property? They're like, well, we don't have any woods. And I was like, I know there's, you know, I explained to him, I was like, there's a deer that's just using this open ground. And most people said no, a couple people said yes. So I started kind of checkerboarding um, these different spots where I could at least go out in, in glass or check for tracks, you know, just to kind of try and put the puzzle pieces together. And the, over over the span of that season, um, there was this one spot that kept coming to mind, and it was it was a very small patch of cover, but it was very unique to that area. It had a couple ponds in there, some cattails, and it had, like, this overgrown kind of, like, grove. But the whole thing was probably, I don't know, maybe five or six acres at the most. Um, but there was a really – there was a, a, this pocket of, like, these locust trees – And under those locust trees, there was several scrapes and it had good cover around it. There were some conifers and then there was that, you know, that thick grove. And then there was those, this cattails kind of wetland type stuff just in the middle of wide open ground. But on that scrape um, throughout that season, I I got them on that scrape like two or three times in daylight. Mm -hmm. And I remembered something that Bobby Worthington said about hunting a specific deer because I was bouncing all around for this deer. Like I would hunt him over here and then I'd get a picture of him over here. Or I, then I'd, I'd hunt him over here. And then as I'm leaving or the next day I see him, uh, you know, glass, I glass him up and he's a mile that way. Like I just kept feeling like we were missing each other. So I remember what Bobby Worthington said, and he said, to find that tree that your target animal goes by the most. And then just sit there every day, and that's not my style. I, I'm I'm not super patient like that. But I was like, I think that's the move with this deer, you know, because I'm he's he's covering a ton of ground, and I just can't pinpoint where he's at. It was super random. So it was like coming up on um, November, and I decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit in that that overgrown grove thicket area, that that wetland area downwind of that scrape every time i had a south wind i was going to sit there because there was a good tree to get in again i set up low i was literally at ground level but i was tucked in these conifers there was a this locust tree and then i set up right behind the tree so i was like i was just to the side of like where his movement would be if he came through and checked that scrape essentially Uh, because it was super thick behind me just full of conifers and i kind of snuck through those to get to that spot. But um, I was planning on every possible day that I could just to sit that tree and just, and just, that was my strategy. I kind of committed to it because that was the deer that I wanted. And it wasn't two or three sits that I did that. Um, and uh, I, I remember because I was, I had to, um, I can't remember exactly what we were doing, but something with my daughter with school like I went to, um, something at her school and that was like at four o'clock and, you know, I only had a couple hours like to get out afterwards and I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to buzz out there and, and sneak into that tree. Cause the access was quite good, like getting into that tree and I only had a couple hours left and I snuck out there and got in that tree, got set up low. And part of the reason I wanted to set up low and I was afraid to get up high in that spot is exactly how I said before, like, I didn't want to make the racket of getting up in this tree on such a little patch of cover, you know, like I felt like, you know, I go up there, I hit a branch or break a stick or something like he, he could be bedded 20 yards away. I don't know. It was so sure. thick. Um, so I didn't even want to risk it. So it was a silent approach. Get my, my platform. So I can just get my feet off the dry leaves and, and get my uh, in that saddle. And I'm sitting right behind that tree And, um, I hear some rustling running around and, um, I can tell like a a buck's chasing a doe in this thicket. I had no idea which deer it was, but all of a sudden this doe comes burning right through right in front of me and she stops right by that scrape and she looks back and I'm like, all right. So I just, (laughs) I I get, I get ready and I kind of lean out like this. Still no idea what deer it is. You know, it could have been a year and a half year old buck. And I hear this big, loud grunt. Like he lets me know that he's coming. I'm like, oh man, that's him, and I just knew it. You know, you just hear that, you hear that noise, and I just knew. And I came to full draw before he even came out of the out of the thick stuff. And all of a sudden, I just see that big. Like he had these like big ivory tines, and uh, he comes right right by that scrape, chasing that doe. He wasn't even chasing her; he was just walking. You know, she took off, and he was just walking. And I I bleated at him to stop. Shot him at like twelve steps. <laughs> So, that's awesome, yeah, it, man it was super cool and and uh it was neat to you know because like you said you know I listen to guys that have done it before me and, and proven tactics and and although I may not have that same style as Bobby Worthington like I respect that style and it's it's proven oh yeah and I was I was able to pull that out at the right time when I when I thought that that was the play.
0: You know, that's the thing, man, is, is we, we have to check our egos and, and learn from, from, you know, everybody, you know, Bobby style, you know, he's big hill country guy. He's actually going to come down to Kentucky with me in April and we're going to walk a a big track that I got permission on. And, and, you know, I'm not a big hill country guy. I haven't hunted a lot of hill country, but Bobby and I have become friends over the last year and, you know, that's all he does. You know, if, if he wanted to go hunt Texas or Mexico, I could definitely help him with that. And and so, you know, I, I I'm so looking forward to, to spending that time with him and, oh, and, yeah. and, you know, seeing a, you know, a week, we're going to spend a week down there walking this property. And, and I'm just, I'm not going to talk a whole lot, which is um, not my strong suit. I do like to talk a lot, but um, <laughs> I'm going to be real quiet and listen to what he has to say because it's just a wealth of knowledge and his tactics are a little bit different. You know, I, I like to move around a, a good bit too. And, and, you know, getting in one tree and one funnel and, and having it set up and sitting there day after day after day is can be grueling, but he has been ultra successful doing that.
1: Yeah. What an awesome opportunity for you. I've, i you know, if there was, if I could pick two or three guys to spend a few days in the woods, he would be one of them. You know, he more definitely, would. he's a true woodsman and, uh, I have all the respect for him. So that'll, that'll be yeah. an awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm
0: like a kid at Christmas. I, I can't wait. wait
1: for that. That's cool.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you got another one for us?
1: Yeah. Um, one more quick one. This one's, this one's cool too, because, uh, uh another Ohio buck. Um, I, I don't think I've told this story before. So, um, I shot this one last year actually, and I actually had, uh, encounters with this deer two years before and the year prior. So, um, two years before I was, it was a really windy day and, um, I wasn't on any, anything big. I didn't know of any good deer in the area. And I just went to this piece of ground. And because it was windy, um, it was masking my noise of kind of slipping around and, a lot of times if I'm in a new area and it's you get I get wet conditions or you know drizzle or, or windy, I, that's how I like to hunt. I like to still hunt and kind of slip around. I feel like I can scout effectively. And who knows, man, you might lay eyes on one. In this case, I did. So I was kind of slipping around, playing the wind, and and mainly kind of doing some scouting, looking for some some good sign. And all of a sudden I see, I'm, I'm working down this edge and I kind of look up into the timber and I see a buck and I see a, a kind of a white rack. You know, it's a good buck, good pope and young size buck. And I was like, oh, sweet. And I have no problem taking a deer that size, especially if the hunt is cool. You know, I'm not going to do it on a piece of managed ground, like where we're passing, you know, trying to, you know, pass some three, four year old deer or whatever. But this was a, um, a piece of ground that it's heavily hunted, and I thought, what a cool opportunity to sneak up and try to get an arrow on this deer. So he's coming down, and uh, coming down kind of off this hill, and I'm sneaking down the edge, and I, I start, um, I see him coming down, and I'm trying to pick up the pace so I can cut him off, and I really think I'm going to make this happen. And then all of a sudden, he kind of bursts down, and he pops out into this opening, and I'm, I'm too far away, so I just tuck, I tuck into the weeds like this. And then I'm like, all right, I'm just going to watch him because he was too far to shoot. And he looks back up into the timber and all of a sudden he's like, he's looking back and I'm like, what is he looking at? Is it another deer or what? And then he just takes off and he runs across this field and like, you know, far away. I never saw him again. And I'm like, what in the heck? And then all of a sudden I see this guy walk out of the woods and he's got a crossbow <laughs> and I'm like, what is that guy doing? And, and then I was like, I was kind of mad for a minute. And I was, then I started thinking about like, he's doing the same thing I'm doing. He's slipping around in the, you know, in the wind. So I ended up talking to him, but that was a, a huge blessing because I didn't, I didn't kill that deer. And in reality, he was probably like a three-year-old deer, probably 125 inches, you know, a 10 point pretty deer. And um, so the next year I kind of had that deer in the back of my mind thinking, you know, he might be a decent deer in the following year. So I wanted to kind of check and see if he survived, ran some cameras out there and I pick him up in the summer and he's, he's gotten heavier and he's wider. He's like 20 inches plus. He's good looking buck. I was like, man, that's, you know, probably mid one forties type deer, great deer for that area. And um, so I'm really trying to like learn where this deer is. What I've, what I judging by where the sign was left some of the pictures I got in the direction of travel and seeing him a few times, I, I came to the conclusion that he was betting most of the time on a neighboring property, his private ground. This this guy had some awesome cover. Um, he was a big hunter and he just said, he just had the spot, you know, and I was kind of hunting a piece next to it. And every once in a while, that deer would come over and cross the line mm-hmm. and, and, and come over on this side. And what I, what I started to see was like, he would make these periodic trips over in the middle of the night. I'd get every couple of weeks, I would get a picture of him on a scrape or something in the middle of the night. And he would be coming from that direction and then nothing. So I started to kind of put this piece together. I, like, he's, he's checking this area out. There was a lot of does over by where I was. There's nice drainage that had some great dough bedding in it. And I was like, he's, he's making some, some outings over here to check, you know, because, Sometimes bucks will do that, you know, they'll be living over here in their their main bedding areas and where they feel secure, but as the rut starts approaching, they start making these little outings and they're just checking, you know, check in and then they'll go back. You get into that late October, early November time frame, then they start they start spending more time over there where the does are. And that's exactly what this buck did. So there's a great funnel coming out of his bedding area. So imagine this big chunk of ground um I don't know how many acres it is but it's it's substantial but it's a, a big chunk of ground and it narrows down into this this really narrow funnel and when you look at it from an arrow, you get in there and you see all the trails through it you're like this is the spot man like for him to get from point a to point b it's in this funnel so going by like you know all my instincts as a hunter Um, you know, big mature deer, they like to stay in cover, you know, so I'm like, he's going to, he's going to come right through this funnel. He's not going to want to pop out in these open fields. Well, I set up kind of right on the edge where I could shoot into that funnel, like right on the field edge. And I can't remember the date. It was November. Um, I think it was later in November too, it was before the gun season. Um, but it was after November 15th. I remember that. And I'm sitting there and I'm after this buck. And all of a sudden, you know, so I'm sitting here like this and the funnel's over here, the wind's blowing me out into the open over here and I'm sitting and I'm ready. And then all of a sudden I catch movement out in the field and I look and that, that buck is way out in the field. Wow. And he's basically what he's doing and, and what I've, what I learned now that this is something that this deer preferred and, and some of the other mature deer in the area, this area is heavily hunted, but it's a very open part of the country very little cover and I think that deer is used to having hunters where there are trees and he was using the open ground as safety so he was popping out of his bedding area way down the line coming way out in the field like like you know a hundred yards out in the field wide open and he can smell all of us sitting in the woods you know yeah. and he's just he ca- he came right down into me and he busted me and um I was like, holy cow, you know, like that deer's that deer smart, you know what I mean? He knew, he knew not to come through that tight funnel because I mean, it's kind of obvious. Like that's where I was. That's, you know, I'm sure other hunters had, had hunted there in the past. And I was like, this is going to be a tricky deer because he's, he likes to use the open ground, you know, he would leave, um, that secure area that, that guy's land that had really light pressure only at certain times of the year, you know, during the rut. And now he's to access the ground that I can, uh, where I can hunt, he's using open ground to get there. And there's nowhere for me to set up. Like I'd have to lay down on my stomach or, or whatever. So I didn't catch up with him that year. So he lives, you know, I'm guessing four years old, he lives. And then I really start thinking about where I can intercept this deer. Um, You know, and because he, he moves over there so infrequently, he doesn't give me many chances. Well, when he, when he comes out of the opening, there's a point where he, you know, where that drainage is, where I was telling you about where all those does bed, I, that's where he's going. And there's a point where he's out in the field and he has to come back. You know, he's he'll he'll go out there and then he has to come back. Well, in that off season, I really started scouting where where all these like does were bedded. You know, I went in the, when there was snow right after the season and I could see like their little impressions in the snow and. There were several little pockets. It wasn't like a big group of like 15, 30 does. It'd be like three here, two here, four here, you know, and and I just started marking all these down on my map. And I was like, all right, you know, I need to be right around where these first does are bedded. When he comes out and he hits that open ground, I want to be set up where he's kind of like angling back into the cover. And it's going to be, it's going to be one of those deals where I have to have my wind blow out into the open because the timber that's where all the other deer are and i can't have them blowing at me and and screwing the hunt so i found this spot where i thought you know if he it kind of it kind of poked out a little and i thought if he was using that open ground and coming to check those does i might get a chance at this deer if he's close enough before he wins me um so i just waited for that this is one of those times where i did prep a tree like i had a tree that was picked out You know, trimmed a few little branches so that I could shoot out into the open. But I also could shoot into the timber just in case. And um, it was November 6th and I snuck in there and the wind direction was perfect for him to do exactly what he had done in the past. And the cameras were telling me like he's picking up activity on this piece of ground. Like he's coming over and he's going back. Like he'd go back in the morning and he'd come back out in the evening. And I was really starting to see that. And I could see where his tracks were too in that, in the field, it was like, um, like a, a cut bean field that he was using. And I was really starting to pick up his tracks and stuff. So I had like a Northwest wind and what that did is it gave him, it gave him the, um, advantage of being able to smell the timber, but it was blowing at an angle where he might get directly South of me and I might be able to get a shot before he gets to my scent stream. And I snuck in there on, uh, November 6th, I get up in that tree and like my head's on a swivel because I'm like, he could come through the timber he coming out in the opening. And I was actually, there was a, another little six point that was coming in and working a scrape in front of me. So I'm, I'm looking at him and all of a sudden I just catch movement like this out of the corner of my eye and I turn and look and it's him and he's trotting. And he's going that same route out in the open, and he's heading towards that dough bedding. And he's already in my shooting lane when I see him. And I'm sitting down facing the wrong way, and my bow is hanging up. And so I, I see him like this, and I go, burp. And what, I, what I'm what i trying to do is, like, I got to get him to stop him for right now. Like, he, like, three more steps, he's through my shooting lane. Ten more steps, he's in my scent stream. I just got to get him to stop. Yeah. I, I go burp and as soon as I did that I just stand and I grab my ball and I just I start rotating like this just slow just slow and he's looking but he's looking at ground level you know and I'm way up here I'm, I'm actually kind of like up on a ridge slightly and I'm high in the tree because I was able to prop that tree so I'm I'm slowly rotating and I had already ranged, um, some spots out there, so I knew he was right around 40 yards. So I had my, I I was, as I'm rotating, I'm setting my, my sight, and then I come to full draw and he's still looking. So he's looking down here and I'm up here and I come to full draw and put the pin on him and release the shot and just drill him. Perfect. So (laughs) the the reason, the reason I love that hunt is because that deer was doing something that I don't see mature deer do a lot and use open for safety you know during bow season he he was darn near bulletproof you know you just couldn't get him within bow range during gun it would have been a different story but it was really cool I thought to have the forethought when I saw him trotting through like my only chance now is to stop him I gotta stop him now because he's there I'm not even ready
2: yeah yeah he's gonna be gone either way
1: Yes. So I like, I stopped him and stood at the same time and just kind of grabbed my bow and and rotated and came to full draw, kind of like all in one motion. And, uh, it was just one of those moments where like every once in a while you'll do something as a hunter, as a bow hunter. And it's not like you're trying to toot your own horn, but you might say like, that was, That was kind of cool to be able to pull that off. Or, like, that was kind of advanced to have the forethought to do that and the instinct to do that without panicking, without making big jerky movements and just slowly rotating, having the forethought to stop him in that lane before he hit your sense stream. You know, it was just one of those moments where I was like, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it,
0: yeah. Desperate times calls for desperate measures and and, yeah. and you pulled it off, man. That's, that's awesome. Two awesome buck stories, man. We appreciate you yeah. sharing those.
1: Yeah, no problem. Those, those are uh, really two, two cool ones. I don't, it's not often I get to chase bucks multiple years so when i do it's it's super special
0: yeah man that's good stuff well andy man thank you so much again we appreciate you uh coming on hopefully we'll run into you at some of the shows are you going to go on any of the deer shows this year we're going to be up in indy this weekend and going to be over in wisconsin uh going to be in columbus ohio for that one in march so we're going to be around a lot hope hope you're going to be hitting some of those shows are you Is, is that your plan or
1: yeah um i'm not real sure yet there's a chance i'll be at the iowa deer classic i don't know if you guys are going there
0: that Um, one conflicts with the dixie deer classic in raleigh um that that one's in march right yeah i think so yeah Yeah, i think the closest one will be is is the columbus one that's also in march um so that that we we won't be too far from you then but i know we'll hook up somewhere along the path here before too long
1: yeah, if I'm hitting any of those shows, I'll, uh, I'm going to talk with the Tether guys, see what they're, what they're doing. So if, if I'm going to be there. Awesome, man. Thank yeah. you again.
0: Have a good night, buddy. We really appreciate it.
1: All right. Thanks, guys.